up folks justin Kana. this is the repertoire podcast and we are back with another solo episode it's been a feels like it's been months since we've done one of these and i don't stop talking about the news we still do it every single week inside of the newsletter but i think it's just become one of those things where i put so much time and energy into that side of sharing the news and and the audio version for whatever reason it's just i've kind of fallen off and i had this revelation this week where i was like you're doing all the writing. You're doing you're doing all the same stuff you used to do with the solo podcasts. And as I think about some of the the highest performing episodes that you folks have listened to, they have been some of those solo episodes. And so as a testament to bring that back into the fold, I have kind of a new workflow for getting these up and live. And so I'm just excited to bring you one this week. And if you read the newsletter, you might notice that this might almost function as kind of like a look back almost like a summary, some of my top hits, and and also what I really hope with some of these solo podcast episodes is that I can give you a little bit of additional context if uh, you folks give feedback, if you folks get involved in a conversation on the repertoire, Instagram, or something like that, we can bring those up in these types of podcasts, so it's not something where it's just like it lives and dies by the newsletter, or we're just constantly trying to fuel like hatred and back and forth banter, can actually maybe become something that's positive for us as a community. And so the way this is going to kind of work is I'm going to do some of the big stories that we covered and then I'll just kind of gloss over a couple of like fun recommendations that might be something that you can go listen to after the fact here. Almost like what you would expect from what you normally expect from my solo podcast episodes if you've been listening for a while. So the first story comes from a startup founder that I follow on Twitter. His name is Nick Huber. He goes by at sweaty startup on Twitter. And he had just a monster thread for our industry. And it's so funny because his businesses are in like storage, like he does not touch food in any way, shape or form in his day to day. And so I don't normally read these all the way through. But I think longtime listeners know that when there is something that is just like, I genuinely think this is worth your time, or I think that there's some impact that this can give, I'm super down to read it. So I'm going to dig into this, and then we'll give a little bit of our take at the end. So, quote, a friend of mine was an excellent chef turned failed restaurateur, a story and a lesson. He loved cooking. He was excellent at it, had friends over often, and really enjoyed cooking for them. He would get told by everyone who tasted his food, quote, you should open a restaurant. Eventually, he did. He took out some loans, quit his 9-to-5, opened a restaurant, and he ran it for about three years. Worked 60 hours a week, no vacations, no cooking for friends anymore. Every Thursday through Sunday night, the last one to leave at 1 a.m. was him. The only time that he saw his friends was when they were in his restaurant, and he'd stop by between stressful situations to say hi. He gave up a few weeks ago, broke, in debt actually, and broken as a human. Reading the Google reviews for his business, it's a little sad. No more raving fans like those dinner parties in his home. Just customers complaining about how cold how cold the food was, or slow service, or an undercooked steak. Turns out, running a profitable restaurant has very little to do with your ability to cook. Running a profitable and successful business of any kind, in any sector, consists mostly of doing the same things. Recruiting, hiring, training, managing, selling, and solving problems. He wasn't a manager. He didn't enjoy confrontation. He wasn't a people person. He spent very little time owning a restaurant actually cooking. Almost none of it, actually. The lesson, don't start a business for selfish reasons. It isn't about you. It isn't about doing what you want or love to do. 
If any business becomes successful, the owner will quickly graduate from doing that fun thing and they'll find themselves recruiting, hiring, training, managing, selling, and solving problems. Might as well start something that gives you the best odds of making great money while doing those not so fun things. And that is the end of his Twitter thread. Uh, if you're just kind of like, if you're hanging your mouth open like I was the first time that I, re I read this, uh, I, well well done. Uh, we're, we're in the same boat. I, I, I like Nick's just give it to you straight kind of attitude and just kind of demeanor that he has. I think he does a lot of it sometimes on Twitter just, just to be controversial, and he's really good at drumming up just like anger from people. But the reason that I wanted to share this one in particular, not just because it's industry focused for us, but because it's a truth hammer, like he is not the only one to have a friend who has experienced this in their lives, in their careers. And listeners of the podcast might be getting sick of how my rant on, on, on how chefs reach a certain point in their career where they need to either, and I'm kind of putting this in two camps here, they need to either put the cookbooks down, step away from the stove, and begin to develop those entrepreneurship and business skills. Because as this thread lays out, you you have all these tasks that are not flavor-related. They're not technique-related. It doesn't matter how fast you are at butchery. You need to be recruiting. You need to be looking at the PL. You need to be all these other dot points. Or, so again, the person needs to step away from the stove, or they need to say, I still want to be at the stove, but because the business still needs these tasks getting done, I need to be the one to put my hand up for help and partner with someone who does possess these skills so that the business can not just survive, but thrive. And to be clear, I'm not suggesting that chefs should not own businesses, but I think we just need to call a spade a spade here. If the next generation coming into the industry knows to expect that transition, they can build it into their career plan. It doesn't have to be just like this wall that you run into where you're just like, oh my goodness, this was really, really hard. And I'm even having to struggle with this, right? I grew, I built so much of my identity on being like a great line cook and the struggles that I had to go through to get those skills. And now I really relish in like, that's where I feel like I have mastery. But then when I look to people saying, oh, well, you're going to start a restaurant, right? And I'm like, that's why I don't have one yet, because I feel like there's so much developmentally and learning wise. And like, I need to see the case studies. I need to see the examples. And it's so funny because once you start to dig into that, you start to realize that like a brick and mortar standalone restaurant where you are the one behind the stove all the day is like one of the silliest businesses you can start from a cash flow perspective, like if that's your priority. And what I think having these stories be more widely talked about gives us is the ability to have that next generation ask better questions and pay attention more to what's going on around them. In other words, if I can know that I need to have a little bit of financial literacy going into starting my restaurant versus these stories that you hear where it's just like, oh, well, they, they were just cooking at this place because they took it over and then a critic came and then it was just this magical moment where they just got all this critical acclaim and then they were booked every single night and then it was like a dream come true. Like those stories can happen, but it's like depending on the type of concept that you're wanting to launch, you might not ever have a critic come into your place. And especially in this day of social media and online reviews, it's kind of like, you are just a couple of bad experiences away from really digging yourself into a hole with your business. And what I hope having, a, again, a little bit more of a proliferation on this, and, and that's why we make the, pro the products we create at, at Repertoire, is I just want less stories like this one. 
less financial hardship, less emotional struggle, better managed expectations, and ultimately better businesses in the long run. Because I think when I see these businesses are like flying, when it's like the perfect mix of exactly what that entrepreneur wants to do, exactly what the staff needs, exactly what the guests get excited about, that gives them longevity. That's like, there's, it's, it's, it's so exciting when I can see that. But it's like, you also have all these horror stories or like examples where it goes the opposite. And so the more and more I discuss this, the more and more convinced I am that this is the hill that I'm willing to die on. I, I'm not going to be the person who's going to tell you like, oh, well, just it's like if the people who tell the advice of like, oh, well, if you build it, they will come type of advice. And it's like, I don't necessarily think I agree with that 100%. So I'd love to know your thoughts. If you uh, go ahead and read this uh, thread, it is linked up in the show notes and then you can just retweet at me or, or share it on your Instagram story and let me know exactly what your thoughts are when you read this. Sick of getting updates via text from your team just like that? What about messy last minute emails that are hard to keep track of? Seven Shifts is an all-in-one team management solution that you've been searching for with features like team availability tracking, real-time updates, and seamless communication. You'll be able to manage your team with ease. Say goodbye to manual scheduling and hello to a more productive, efficient team. Seven Shifts is giving you listeners a very generous three-month free trial of their The Works tier, which I'm beyond stoked on because it's unlimited employees on this trial. So regardless the size of your business, the scale that you're operating at, you can really kick the tires on this product and get all the great features like payroll integration, advanced reporting, and so much more. To claim your free three months, go ahead and check out joinrepertoire.com slash seven shifts. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S, or an even easier way, just click the link in the description of this podcast to try it out now and see the difference for yourself. Thanks so much to seven shifts for sponsoring this episode. See if you can say that seven times fast. Thanks so much to seven shifts for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, that was like a seven out of 10 attempt. I'm trying to get better. All right, next up, Blackbird is a company i'm gonna call it a company it's also like a brand that is was launched by ben leventhal and if you don't know who ben leventhal is he is was one of the the co-founders i'm almost positive in resi which was acquired by american express i think back in 2019 sometime pandemic ish range and he has this new concept company that he collective i don't even again i don't know how to call this it's called blackbird they're at blackbird xyz they have a Substack. And they just hire really interesting writers to come in and, and write about the food and beverage industry. The thing that I will add as a caveat before you just kind of like really lean into it and it's like, oh, he's building another reservation platform. He's calling it technology solutions for hospitality. There's seems to be some sort of like Web3 crypto, you know, integration that's happening there, which again, I think I've made it very clear in newsletters that I've written about before. I'm incredibly bullish on this technology. It's just I haven't seen an example that doesn't feel like a cash grab yet, you know, where it's really enhancing the guest experience. And and I, I wrote about that in a separate newsletter. So you have to go look back through the archives to find that. It's It was a recent one. But anyways, Blackbird shared a piece called Five Factors That Determine a Fire Spot. And it was just a fire emoji. I wasn't even calling it fire. Uh, Emily J. Wills is the author of this piece, and I'm just going to read you a quick piece here, and then I'll go into kind of what I think about it here. Quote, why do we yearn for the toughest tables in town? Well, exclusivity has always had its allure. Just ask Charlie Chaplin, and in today's post-pandemic world, chic and vibey restaurants are akin to the new velvet-roped clubs or even the new catwalks. There's also the perceived accessibility factor. Not only is going out for a dinner a form of entertainment that one can do seven days a week, 
should one so choose, but restaurant reservations are ostensibly democratic. There's no snobby doorman superficially sizing you up before you merci before mercilessly shunning you. All one must do is buckle down and snag that resi before someone else with a smartphone does. So what I said here is that this type of rhetoric or looking at this as gospel is a bit of a double-edged sword. Similar to the, the analogy that I drew was looking at a biography on, let's say, the Red Hot Chili Peppers and saying, this is how you make it in music. Or you look at like The Rock and you're like, this is a blueprint for fitness. I don't like to use the word unrealistic to describe the Red Hot Chili Peppers' success or The Rock's body because it is real. Like, it, it was accomplished. Like, it's not fake. Like, it's not like The Rock has, like, peck injections that are just making him look ripped. Like, he's genuinely earned it. You can see their achievements. However, what folks fail to acknowledge is the graveyard of what I'm calling shmor attempted schmorices compared to the singular success of Torisi. I hope that this is making sense. And if you see some of the restaurants that this uh, author calls out in this article, you'll see what this person is kind of talking about, the general genre of restaurant that this person is discussing when she gives this description of what a fire spot is. The other question I'd like to just remind you folks is like, what about audience? Because this list can almost certainly benefit the entrepreneur who's wanting to open in Santa Monica or has a place in Soho that they want to launch in New York. But does it work in Indianapolis? Like, if you live in Milwaukee, should you be reading these, these this list and, and taking these factors into account? If you have a place in, like, Spokane, Washington, like, should you be reading this list? So the thing that I lean into next is, like, pardon the pun, but picture each of these details that she lines out, each of these five factors, is like an ingredient on the shelf. And so one, one that she said is, have a strong take. And so if you dump an entire bottle of have a strong take into your coffee shop concept, you run the risk of losing potential customers. See this segment of an old podcast where I ranted on this topic, and I'm going to link this in the show notes as well, where I basically go on this piece. It was right after Bonjwing gave this uh, insightful rumination that he wrote about where he was talking about, do chefs know that the top 1% of diners can sometimes sniff out when they're kind of like copying a dish from somebody else. And the way that I kind of responded to that was like, yes, they might, but it's like, should you potentially shift all of your operations to cater to this 1% diner? To, to, to the person who is writing this article and is just like, it's all about the vibe, man. What I fear is that you run the risk of cooking for the 1% and losing the 99%, if that makes sense. And I, I totally get the argument that like, oh, well, if the 1% comes and if the 1% is the one that's kind of like posting on Instagram for us, I'm not talking about 1% wealth. I'm talking about like has a massive audience, goes out to eat at all of the places. Do you know what I mean? Like is constantly traveling, has context on different cities and, and all of that stuff. It's like, I guess as maybe a better way to say it is like as I've gotten more experienced and tenured in eating out, I'm less interested in being just like wowed by something novel and I'm more interested in being able to see like, oh, this place actually knows what they're trying to go for and they're actually consistently doing that every single night. Oh, well, this is actually well run in a way where I feel hospitality during this experience versus, you know, like, have you ever been to a place where you are almost like neglected because the place is like almost too cool? 
I'm so over that kind of stuff. You know, like I, that that does not get me excited to come back. And it almost makes me like worse, uh, less likely to either recommend it or just kind of like speak well about it. And the problem is like when you read lists like this, it's kind of like, well, they have a strong take, they have a vibe. they like, And, and it's like if you kind of combine all of those factors together or the type of person who's likely to pursue a type of business that adheres to these factors – I just fear that you get to this funny place where it's just like, oh, well, I had a horrible hospitality experience or like, oh, it was really expensive. Do you know what I mean? And so what I kind of ended my take on here is at the end of the day, having a fire spot might feel good if you're the owner of that place to see the the likes rolling in on Instagram or the celebrity names on your resi dashboard. But if you really sit an owner down of one of these places, getting this kind of reputation as a fire spot is really just beneficial for business, right? Like you have to spend less work on marketing, less money on marketing. The word of mouth behind you is just kind of working. And and what that allows you to do is just kind of like get, spend more time focusing on hopefully the things that matter. And then you can establish, like the, the thing that I just like to remind people is then you need to start thinking about establishing some sort of long-standing favorites on your menu. And to me, where the magic happens is being able to maintain that year after year. And then when the profits allow those owners to achieve that, that's what I get excited about. That's what I want to just like make sure that if I could add a sixth item to this five factors, it's like profitability and longevity. Because I think you and I could both agree that if we were to just do a little bit of a, we've shared this in the, in the past too, we do a quick search of what the trends are for the year. We do a little bit of a Instagram AI deep dive into what aesthetics are people likely to post about. We could have a, a place in nine months that is just like reasonably like we could host it as a pop-up series or something like that. And people have done this in the past too. They just take something that's trendy and they launch it and it ends up becoming a fire spot. But then it's like you look at them 24 months later and they have nothing. And so again... Just wanting to provide another perspective. I'm not saying any of these places are not correct, but look at these as ingredients, less as rules. Okay, real rant incoming. And this is for the the, the stands of my Ryan Sutton teardowns. By the way, I did see that he ended up leaving Eater. Before we get into this article, I have a new... I, I didn't talk about today's beverage. It's because it's empty. I have this kombucha green tea. It comes in a bag. It's from a company called Yogi. It's so good. Like it's it's only 15 milligrams of caffeine, which for me and my love of caffeine, it is four in the afternoon right now, so I'm not drinking caffeine anymore. But it's like it has acid to it. It has floral notes. It has tea flavor undertones. It's so good. And so that's kind of my my current flow right now. If anybody wanted a quick caffeine uh, dosage update on Justin, I do like my my coffee in the morning, which is usually like. I don't know, like a 12 ounce, 16 ounce coffee in the morning. And then sometime around midday, I will do one of these green tea kombucha by Yogi. This is not sponsored in any way. I just, for, for long time listeners know that I like to do a little bit of a, of a, of a beverage shout out, but I, I'm drinking just water, nothing fancy. Okay, so the New York Times came out with this article called Hostility and Hospitality. How the faint line between them. I mean, just from the jump, they had some pretty interesting food styled, you know, things where they they would take food utensils, render them useless or ineffective, and then take photos of them in a food styled way. Thought that was kind of interesting, like very artistic for them to do that. 
So let's go into a, a little bit of the context of this piece, and then I just kind of go on a bit of a tear here. So let's 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 dig into this. Quote: The Latin hostess once meant guest, then became thoroughly through some shadowy slippage of language, the word for enemy. So you can think of hostess and then hostile. An etymological twist that might make some smile grimly, particularly those of us who have worked in restaurants as part of the so-called hospitality industry. For how else are we to think of the guests who flex their power from the moment they stalk the dining room, who frown at the table they're led to, aggrieved at the imagined underestimation of their status, and insist on moving to another, often identical table, who try to meddle with the kitchen, demanding that the chef subtract and substitute ingredients to the point of creating entirely new dishes, who wrinkle their noses at perfectly fine bottle of wine and declare it corked just to pull rank on the sommelier, who snap their fingers at servers, leer, sneer, or scream, you can't do your job, a line attributed to the actor and late night host James Corden last fall over a flubbed order at the downtown Manhattan brasserie Balthazar, for those who haven't heard that story, now you have who tip stingily or not at all, ignoring the fact that in the United States, the federal minimum wage for tipped employees is only $2.13 an hour, or who book a table and then don't bother to show up, as happens with many as 28% of all reservations, according to a 2021 study by YouGov and OpenTable, which can cost a small restaurant hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars, if not an entire night's profit. So that very long run-on paragraph, semicolon, comma, you know, kind of preamble is how this person starts the conversation. And if I'm going to be honest, like reading this piece was 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 weird. It flows like a combination of saved tweets, and then fuse that with like pasted text from Wikipedia, and then the author seems to have just been like keeping dot points as she watched the menu, because she mentions the menu multiple times, like the timing of that menu, like, I don't know if it spurred the, the genesis of this article or what happened there, but what I found as I read this all the way through is that it falls into the trap that many takes like this arrive at, and it's a paradox. So when you take this kind of stance, when you try to come at the hospitality industry in this way, you're gonna arrive at a paradox. So let me lay out some examples. So this writer points at low wages as the reason behind these problems, but then actively makes it more difficult for restaurants to raise prices when they scoff at the price of a tasting menu in the literal next paragraph. So they'll say, oh, it's because restaurant people aren't making enough money. And then it's like you make fun of or you ridicule or you like shame restaurants for charging more. Or you'll say that, oh, well, when you charge that much, you're making it only available to, like, the elite. Like, whatever that means. So, I guess the paradox is, like, do we want higher wages or do we want lower prices? Right? So, like, that's a paradox. It's also, let's talk about another one. It's apparently ridiculous for guests to ask for substitutions on dishes, but it's also inexcusable for a restaurant to not even allow dietary restrictions, every dietary restriction under the sun to be accommodated. Do you see where that paradox is? It's kind of like, if a restaurant isn't fully accommodating, that's bad. But if guests ask for substitutions on things that, like, might change the nature of the dish a little bit, like, that's also inexcusable. So it's like, which one? These, these people will say that it's frowned upon for a restaurant to charge a booking deposit. She literally says this in the article. Or ask guests to prepay for a reservation. And it's not even like she's maybe saying that they shouldn't do it, but she like she scoffs at it. Like she's she's talking about it in a detrimental way. 
So it's bad to prepay for a reservation and then simultaneously share that 28% of all reservations are no-shows. So it's like, should that just continue to happen? Is the restaurant overstepping? Is the guest overstepping? You know what I mean? Like, it's, 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 a, it's a, you arrive at this destination that is like, it doesn't give you anything productive. She wrote that it's horrible that guests ask for levels of service that are outside of the norm, but then also complain that guests should expect to be served instead of engaged. She's saying that, like, it's so silly for people to try to actually be involved with the experience. So it's kind of like, my question is, should they just sit quietly in their seats or should they participate in their experience? And so much of this comes down to, like, context and nuance. And I know that, you know, that can often get lost. Obviously, there are ways to behave at dinners and there are, you know, not so good ways to to, to participate. But I just, I, I wanted to call to light, like, another paradox like she's argue, trying to argue both sides or present them as problems and it's like that gets me really frustrated as a reader so to all of these questions I often see these writers trying to do this both mentality and to me it's just virtue signaling like I don't really talk about politics I don't use words like woke in in any of my podcasts but it's like you're confidently spinning around cyclically sharing the same points and you're not getting anywhere and i find that these people write about this stuff but there's no practical plan for implementation of change nor a boots on the under boots on the ground understanding of how hospitality businesses actually work is there room for improvement in our industry absolutely i wouldn't have launched this company if i didn't believe that was the case but taking singular happenstance and individual stories we've all got them I'm sure you folks have them too. And using like violent language. So I picked out a couple that she used here. She, she, she uses the word rage. She uses the word arena, talking about like a gladiator arena. She says the word tyrant. She says hostile. And it very much so feels like she's broad brushing the entire industry. And to me, in my opinion, that's irresponsible. And that's why I wanted to write about this. To steel man her argument, because I think that that's important to do, I, I do agree with the take that in many day-to-day -day dining interactions, both guests and staff can do better. So it's not just as easy as pointing to one party involved and saying it's your fault. So I do agree with that point. You can't just point to st all staff in all hospitality businesses and say, you are not doing your job correctly, or you can do better. It's also not looking at all guests and saying, you, don't, you have no manners, you don't know how to behave in a restaurant, you are just incredibly rude to everybody all the time. I don't, I, I, it's, it, it is both. So to be clear there, what I don't agree with is just being confronted with like ambiguity. You know what I mean? Like throwing up your hands and just leaving the conversation in limbo. I often find that these types of writers will justify their piece by proclaiming, I talked about it. I started the conversation. I brought up what's wrong with things as if that's worth applauding. So due to my continued frustration by the lack of proposed solutions and action items that both parties can keep in mind, here's what I would like to suggest. Going to try to not be a hypocrite here. So guests, what can guests do? Guests can work to be more communicative, forthcoming with preferences, and ask for what they want instead of expecting mind reading to happen. Learn some basic etiquette. Instead of snapping your fingers or whistling at your table's captain, say, excuse me, it's not that hard. If you make a reservation somewhere and there's a cancellation window that the restaurant requests, set a reminder for yourself to call or email the restaurant if you need to cancel. You do it for other areas of your life, 
you should do it the same. If you have a doctor's appointment and you can't make it, you're going to call your doctor and you're like your dentist would call you, right? So it's like use technology, get a, get a solution figured out for your life. If you have dietary restrictions that will affect how things need to be prepared, send that heads up at least 24 hours in advance to the restaurant. To you and me, this might seem like a no-brainer, but to people who don't go to restaurants often or who have never worked in a restaurant before, it's like, this might be new information. And so, you know, share this episode with someone if that's the case. Keep the number three. It, it, this is also talking to guests. Keep the number three in your mind whenever you see a menu's price. Remember that, the number three. If a salad is $18, it's not that you're paying $18 for the salad. Divide it by three. You're paying $6 for the salad. I hope this is making sense. Then you're paying, then you do, you do the math in your head. You're like, Justin, what's the other $12 for? The $12 is for being able to sit in a beautiful room, having the magical experience of just saying words, and then your food arrives. You don't have to prepare anything. You get to eat off of nice serviceware. You don't have to do any dishes. You don't have to go shopping for the ingredients. And again, you don't have to prepare the freaking salad for yourself. And so factored into that $12 is a myriad of other benefits that you get to experience that I didn't list, right? I just talked about a couple of benefits. One of those benefits is a little thing called profit for the restaurant that the small business that you just became a consumer at will use to continue to stay open. And you can argue with me if you don't think that's important. I think that's pretty important. So staff, let's talk about staff. Staff can strive to also be more communicative. They can level set better with variables like wait times. They can ask thoughtful questions to guests instead of, you guessed it, expecting mind reading to happen. I did a whole video, I'm going to link this in the show notes, on the monotonous settling that can happen in your day-to-day -day in restaurants. I, talked to, I, I equated it to Cirque du Soleil or being a performer at a show like Cirque du Soleil, but it is worth your time to treat every guest like it's their one and only experience with you because chances are it probably is. Staff can also acknowledge where your skill gaps are and you can work to improve them through coaching, through courses, or just more reps. When I finally felt like a hotshot on the line, I was immediately humbled. When I couldn't describe a dish to, the, to a guest without getting all knees weak palms are sweaty, right? And after about four to five months of focused work on improving that public speaking, interacting with guests, describing food skill, I was begging to run dishes to tables, especially critics and industry friends, because I knew that it was a skill that I developed that helped make me stand out to my peers and be a trusted member of the brigade when, you know, we were almost certain that the Michelin guide had come in that night. And my chef was like, Justin, I want you to run the first three courses this table it's like wow that's awesome do you know what i mean like there, there was such a level of just like growth that i felt when that happened and just confidence that i gained in myself when i had the opportunity to do that okay there is a i'm gonna call it category or or variable in this that we have to talk about which i'm gonna call high integrity management and high integrity management is a super helpful third party in this conversation. We talked about guests. We talked about staff. What about management? 
And I think what's so interesting is the author doesn't mention the word management or leadership once in her piece. Open the article, do a control F. She doesn't say management or leadership once. And to me, that perfectly frames this narrative, which is like the workers versus the elite that is at play here. And oftentimes it's just like we're 99% of the time, it's just a human to human interaction. It is not this kind of like grand plan or, or just like oppressive superstructure that, that is that is at play here, at least not in my opinion. Like if you really kind of like siloed individual interactions, it's not that. Sure, you have those stories of J the James Corden, you know, blow up that happens at Balthazar. And I just think that the media will sometimes take that and run with it as a headline versus really contextualizing it to the stuff that happens in every single other interaction throughout throughout this, at least the U.S. So remember, as we're talking about high integrity management, I define integrity simply as having what you say and what you do match. If you say you care about your team, being integrity, integrally aligned with that should be displaying that regardless of the net worth or the level of fame of the guest that's causing a problem on table 12. For those that don't know, in 2018, I became a co-founder in a six-figure-per-year event production company, and I ran that with a business partner all the way up until 2021. And my business partner and I, we agreed that when we joined forces that there would be a zero-tolerance policy on disrespecting our team at, at events especially some of the big ones. These are some of the, the environments where people get the most rowdy. They get the most disrespectful. They get the most like, oh, I don't know where my manners are. Or like, oh, look at how cool I am because I'm wearing a suit. I can behave however I want. I remember specific times where we would have to request that misbehaved guests just leave dinners. Like we would have to step in and calm down heated arguments that were happening at events. We would have to say no to like these outrageous client requests that we didn't have capacity for, even at the expense of more revenue for our business. We would purposely do this crazy thing. I know it sounds crazy. We would reduce workload for team members so that they could have space to go above and beyond for guests instead of feeling like they were redlining all the time. And for me in particular, adopting that practice was almost like a response to the ever-increasing waterline that I would experience at restaurants where, you know, you would come in and it would just feel like a normal Friday, but then all of a sudden you'd have to like do 110%. And then chef would see that and they'd be like, oh, well, we can, we can, we can squeeze a little bit more out or like, oh, that's what like pushing looks like. And then now all of a sudden 110% is the new 100%. And that's the new standard. And every day has to be that level of output going forward. So what we would do is we would tell our team it's okay to work at 70%, understanding that in a long 13-hour event day, you would want to have gas in the tank to push when needed. And it allowed us to keep staff for longer. It allowed us to pay people more. And listen, we weren't always perfect. Clearly, I'm not in that business anymore. But what I have and what I hope to impart on you is like, these are decisions that you can make. I still feel good about our principles in our decision-making and our philosophy that we brought into the business. And the reason that I wanted to bring this up is just to provide an additional perspective to like a pretty gloomy article. Like this person is literally equating hospitality and somehow trying to twist the word backwards or forwards, I can't really decide, into calling it hostile again. 
it's just ripe with pessimism and complaining. And we don't do that at Repertoire. We're optimistic and we're curious, like, where are the opportunities that are available in our incredible industry to grow? And we hope that you have the same sentiment. And so, again, not everything's perfect, but it's like we can do better. And that's what that's what my hope is here. All right, let's do a quickie business news uh, piece here. This this is coming out from Toast. Toast is publicly traded. I didn't know that. But they announced that they were going to partner with Google. It was going to be a Google integration that allows restaurants using Toast online ordering to unlock a new channel for more orders. Order with Google is fully integrated with the Toast point of sale and is seamless for customers and restaurant owners alike. So... A lot of conversations came out of the pandemic with, oh, DoorDash is charging all of these fees, or, oh, pickup ends up cutting into my margins a little bit too much, or, or, you know, all of these conversations around how people were structuring prices and where costs were potentially leaking. And the way that I see it, anytime that there's decreased friction for the customer, it re generally results in those customers being happier. I think as a principle, any single time you see a piece of technology or a new product that decreases friction, a level of service that decreases friction for a customer, you can probably try to bet on that a little bit, barring that it's not cross-prohibitive or, or you know comes with all sorts of other waste or stuff like that. However, we will often see operators not noticing the phantom downsides of these types of integrations. You can absolutely make integrations like this work for your business. But what I want you to make sure if you're considering changing POS systems in the future or, you know, like you're, you're thinking about doing takeaway for the first time, ask yourself, am I losing out on a relationship with the customer here? And another general principle, in addition to the first one I mentioned of like decreasing friction equals good for a customer. The other equation is like the person who's closest to the customer generally gets to set the rules for the game. So if Google is going to be where customers come to find you. Take a tip from a podcast guest that we've had on the show, Rashir from PopChew, and update the featured photos for your business. Because it's like if you're not going to be in control of where those assets, those media assets get pulled from, you need to make sure that you're doing the work to give your customers your best foot forward. You need to ensure that your website is clearly shown. You need to make sure your details are up to date, like your hours or your address, and you're responding to reviews that happen on those platforms. Another question you might ask, is there a price I'm paying here? And we see this all the time. If a platform is charging you a fee or if a change in your service level is resulting in increased expenses, think like disposables, having more staff, additional technology you need to purchase, don't just blindly allow that to happen if you feel like it's detrimental. Why not? And, 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 and the thing that I like to remind people here or like you might be asking me is like, why not give the blanket advice that everybody should just raise their prices? Because you might think, oh, well, we have increased expenses. We need to raise our prices. But organizations that might be bigger than yours that have these robust marketing departments or marketing strategies, they might save money by going on to, by turning on this integration with their POS system. Because if they can keep their prices the same, but they can be on the delivery apps. They don't have to pay for customer acquisition. That's free customer acquisition for them. You know, like, and it's not free, but it's like, it's way cheaper than what I would be paying with these other strategies that I had for getting new customers. And so just keep that in mind. Like, like it's, 
yes, my expenses might be higher, but it's like if I can net net have more sales on the other side of this and I can maybe trim down my menu so that only my heavy hitters are the ones that are being ordered and then it's not like I'm giving access to all customers to my entire menu all the time. It's like you can actually set this up in a really strategic way. The next question you might ask here is, what can I do to stand out? So if you realize that the relationship with the customer is feeling a little bit transactional because of these types of integrations, or maybe it's not feeling so personal as what might be experienced if they come into your restaurant, add the human touch through some authentic hospitality. Have an in-person only option on the menu. And then you can talk about that. So then folks are encouraged to come in and include a cheap printout in the bag of every order, and you can market that to people. Again, this is talking about like, oh, well, you might look at this and say, oh, well, that's a expensive printing thing that's going to, you know, like cause a downside for me. But it's like, well, if that can allow you to take someone who you basically acquired as a customer for free and then turn them into a regular because they're close enough in your delivery radius to become a regular. Oh, my goodness. Like, what a what a hack. Do you know what I mean? What a growth hack. Is there a world where you can build in loyalty through software enabled programs? Is there a way that you can incentivize reviews from folks that have a great experience? I went to a place in Seattle the other day where they were like, what did they say? I, I ordered, it was like a new like Mediterranean spot. And I just got like a Euro bowl. It was just like a quick lunch that I needed to have after a meeting. And they said something to the effect of like, oh, we'll give you a free drink if you leave a Google review. Not understanding that like the whole reason I picked them to go to for that meal is because they had great Google reviews. And I was like, wow, I've never heard of this place, but like they seem to have really good reviews and there's a lot of them. And it's like, that's a crazy incentivization program that like if I had, and I did have a great experience, so I did leave a really good review. And so if any of these like strategies or hacks either resonate with you or if you have additional stories that have helped you in the past 36 months through this COVID madness, please hit us up on Instagram, tweet at us or at me. You folks know the rules. I'd love to share your stories. All right, let's do some quick hits here. So inside of the repertoire newsletter, we include this section towards the bottom called This Week We Learned. And it's basically just a, a roundup of some interesting links, some, some you know, things that we might go on deep dives in the future, and just stuff that we think is worth your time. Again, like we filter this stuff. We curate this so that you're not, you know, kind of getting anything that's just like a listicle or just like a cheap, you know, piece of media. This is like we comb the internet and try to save you time here. So... This week, I learned about this really fascinating restaurant out of the UK called Fallow, where Jack and Will own it. It's a contemporary restaurant. Jack Croft and Will Murray and James Robson serve innovative food and carefully sourced ingredients in the heart of London. What's mo the most interesting about this is that like they've grown to almost 50,000 subscribers they do these kind of like walk through 28 minutes of a busy service, like live stream feels very like if Kenji worked in a restaurant is kind of how I like to describe it. And I haven't done like a big binge of like exactly what is it that happens in in some of these longer videos. But the fact that they record it and that, that they're so transparent about it is like that's what I wanted to do when I moved to Seattle. I was like, I'm going to record my services. I'm going to talk about our prep. I'm going to like launch a restaurant with a media company kind of built in. And it's awesome to see that somebody just like did that. I, I have no relationship with these guys. I have no idea who they are. But it's like I want to applaud it when I see it because it's like I wanted this for my business because I saw the benefits of it. 
given the choice between a no-name restaurant that you've never heard of and this, like, if I go to London, I'm going to want to eat at this restaurant, right? So it's like, they didn't do any work or paid work, you know what I mean, to try to acquire me as a customer, but just by getting free attention on the internet, they were able to, you know, in the future, they will have my business. So I'm talking to the operators here, I suppose. We also shared this really interesting piece about how Oreo, the company Oreo, comes up with their limited edition flavors. So if you've been paying attention to your supermarket aisles lately, man, chicken and waffles, the red velvet ones, the spring ones, different colors, different crazy flavor combinations, the whole thing about how they keep this process extremely secretive and guard the privacy on this is fascinating. So the the senior, what is he, the senior director of the Oreo brand named Justin Parnell says that he can't even reveal the name of the team that works on these flavors. And this is like one of those funny things, I talk about this all the time. In my culinary school, they gave us like this list of potential hospitality jobs that you could have someday. In no way, shape, or form was it like be a part of a flavor and collaborations department at Nabisco. I think Nabisco owns Oreo. Maybe it's Kraft. I can't, I can't, can't remember. Uh, but it's like, I would not have thought that that could be a job, but it truly is. And it's become something that is like, this is a huge revenue driver for Oreo. Because it's like, oh, I haven't had that new flavor yet. Let's, let's go get another one. Fascinating. Last thing that we learned was Chris Young, the old owner of Chef Steps, has been pumping out content lately. It's been really awesome to see uh, him producing so much. I, I need to have him on the podcast. We've gotten into a Twitter conversation a couple times, but it just hasn't worked out to get him on the show. His latest series is called, well, it's a four-part series on smart ovens. So let me just read you the titles of these. Quote, the first one is, is this oven flying blind? Breville Jewel Air Oven Fryer Pro Review. I think it's interesting because he, Chef Steps got acquired by Breville, for those that didn't know. And Chris was one of the original founders of Chef Steps. And what's awesome to me is like how transparent he is in some of these beginning videos of like, hey, I have a relationship with Breville, uh, but just so you know, it's not going to affect how I kind of evaluate this. So for any, that's just a little quickie piece of advice for anybody who's thinking about potentially doing promo content on their business or just kind of like doing reviews in the future for someone who's been making reviews on the internet for six years now it's like it's not worth your reputation in my opinion you know what i mean to to hide your your relationship with a brand or you know what i mean like the internet's bullshit detector is so strong and it's like it's when I, why I made one of the decisions early on to like not use superlatives in my reviews. I you I you'd be hard pressed to find me saying always or the best or the perfect. You know what I mean? Maybe if I'm talking about it from a like if I bent my spatula and I feel like it's a perfect fish spatula, I might talk about that. But it's like I don't take on ambassador type roles or anything like that. And so that might change in the future for me, but just one of those things that I feel like allows Chris in these types of series to have success is because he's willing to be transparent. I think that that's all people want is they just want to know, like, are you trying to sell me something or is this something where it's like you have a relationship? Because if you have a relationship, that's fine. It just don't not tell me that you have one and then try to put these head to head and then claim that you're one that you're connected to or have an incentive in seeing the upside in ends up being the best one. Okay. So the second one is quote, an oven that cooks with a camera. And this is the June smart oven. And the third one is the Ninja Foodie XL smart oven. 
and he calls this quote the best countertop air fryer question mark very very youtubey uh thumbnail oh and then the last one he does is smart or not breville versus ninja versus june ovens reviewed and so also as someone who's done a series on this before like i did my chef's knife bonanza on the channel years ago I love this type of breakdown because I truly believe that like one of the best ways to review things or give people context on the difference between different products and which one might be right for them is a good old fashioned side by side. I do it in my cooking videos even now where it's like doing a side by side is so helpful because you can directly compare things in a tangible way versus like this very ephemeral. Oh, well, I don't know if it feels you know what I mean? Like you have hard data that you can kind of like compare and contrast with. So with that, that has been, let me go all the way back to my logo here. That has been this episode of the Repertoire Podcast. It's great to be back with you in a solo fashion. If you want to get these news articles earlier, if you want to see the writing that we do every week, which includes monologues, we do an In Case You Missed It section so that you can see all of the pieces of content that we put out there that are original pieces that you might have missed. We put out discounts on gear from some of our brand partners. Uh, for example, oh, and events like we talk about, like I have a, a pop-up dinner coming up in 18 days, but who's counting. And we also do like, I am doing this whole live streamed series with seven shifts, which is one of our brand partners. You might've heard an ad read on even this episode, but like we're doing a one on Tuesday called uh, 1% better every day. So I'm doing some hospitality focused strategies on that. And then the last one is, uh, called from scattered to system. And so this is stuff that I've used uh, with some of you folks one-on-one -on -one in coaching sessions, and I'm just doing a free session. Seven Shifts is, is sponsoring it for you folks, which is super generous of them. And so if you want to get the heads up on stuff like that first, we publish clearly. We publish the newsletter way more frequently than we do these podcasts, and it's just going to be linked up in the description for you. It's an honor to be back with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Roll the outro. Well, well, here we are together again at the end of another episode of the Repertoire Podcast. If this is your first time listening, this is a show for hospitality creators who want to think better, increase their performance, and believe that it's possible to take lessons from what others have already learned. I am your host, Justin Con and if you're new here, I'd like to personally welcome you to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Friendly heads up to check out the show notes inside of the description of this podcast if you want to check out previous guests, links to specifics that got brought up in this episode, as well as other helpful content that we create and share here online because everything we do is focused on helping you along your journey. If you don't have a ton of time, the best place to start is with some value sent straight to your inbox every single week. It's called the Repertoire Newsletter, where we share knowledge on sharpening your skills, asymmetric upside, and exploring the industry beyond the status quo. If if you subscribe, we'll keep you up to date on trends that are shaping the hospitality creator ecosystem. We'll share discounts on gear that we find, as well as content that we've been producing ourselves and helpful articles that we've already read and decided are worth your time. Last up, if you want to connect with other industry professionals in the Repertoire Pro community, you want to check out courses like Total Station Domination or download free tools that we've created, you can learn more at joinrepertoire.com. That's J-O-I-N-R-E-P-E-R-T-O-I-R-E.com. The only ask from me is that if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate a review of this show on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify to help the podcast universe know that people like us like shows like this. Regardless, I'll see you in the next episode. My name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.